Today's episode is brought to you by Rolls-Royce North America. Rolls-Royce North America has been supporting the United States Navy for over 50 years, and today over 90% of the Navy's surface vessels are powered by Rolls-Royce. Their power and propulsion solutions are custom designed to meet an array of DoD requirements and consistently demonstrate dependability, reliability, and efficiency, ensuring the elite mission capability of the Navy at sea. With an eye on the future, Rolls-Royce continues to develop new solutions for electric warships, unmanned vessels, and advanced naval power systems. On today's Real Clear Defense podcast, Hotwash, RCD editor David Craig and contributor John Waters speak with retired four-star Admiral James Stavridis about his new book, To Risk It All, Nine Conflicts and the Crucible of Decision. During his more than 30 years in the U.S. Navy, Stavridis served as Supreme Allied Commander at NATO, as well as commander of a destroyer squadron and an aircraft carrier battle group in combat. He also holds a Ph.D. from the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy at Tufts University, where he recently served as dean. And he is currently the vice chair for global affairs at the Carlisle Group and the chair of the board of trustees for the Rockefeller Foundation. Admiral James Stavridis, uh, the new book called To Risk It All, Nine Conflicts in the Crucible of Decision, uh, the gauge here on the front cover, full steam ahead. Uh, Admiral Stavridis, thanks for joining us today to talk. What a pleasure. Thanks for having me, John and David. And now the last time we spoke would have been uh, a couple of years ago. I, I had read your book, Sailing True North, and asked you some questions. And as I read through To Risk It All here in 2022, uh, I see a lot of similarities between those two books, certainly an interest in heroes. Uh, can you tell me how these two books speak to one another? The first, uh, Sailing True North, I would call a book of character. The subtitle is Ten Admirals in the Voyage of Character. The second book, uh, To Risk It All, is about decision-making. And my view is, John, that the three big axes upon which the balls of our life spin are leadership, how we influence others, character, which is kind of how we influence ourselves. You know, if that big door of leadership swings, it can swing for good or evil. The direction of that swing is based on the small hinge that is human character. That's what's in your heart. But the third great axis of our life, I think, is the decisions we make about risk. And the thesis of To Risk It All is that at some point in your life, you are going to face a decision that you will have to make under extreme pressure. Now, now, now. And often people are surprised to hear that. And they say, well, you know, I'm not a military guy or I'm not a police officer. You know, on the other hand, everybody faces those moments some point or another. And so the idea of to risk it all is to interrogate that concept, that risk is present in all of our lives and try and illustrate how we deal with it, how we make the right decisions. And so what makes the two books quite similar is that each is composed of stories of people uh, sailing true north, 10 admirals, their leadership, but really their character voyage to risk it all, nine 
uh, naval people, that kind of some admirals, some captains, some enlisted people. But in those nine stories, you meet the characters, each of whom faces a moment of risk and decision under extreme press. So the books kind of fit together, I would say, but are actually interrogating very different questions. Understood. And that makes sense. And I'll get into a few of the interesting leadership figures you raise in the story. One of the things I appreciated is how your own leadership journey and development is intertwined with all of these stories. And I want to start in kind of a funny place on that. I look to chapter six, where you talk about playing squash. And I wonder if, do you still play squash, Admiral? I do. Um, I, I play all racket sports. I played uh, both varsity tennis and varsity squash in Annapolis. And I have a racket of some kind or another in my hand at least twice a week. And I will tell you that I've added to my repertoire during pandemic by taking up the sport of pickleball. And pickleball is a terrific racket sport. Um, if you play singles, if you play someone who's a good player, it's a decent aerobic workout. It's on a smaller court than a tennis court, uh, but it's been a lot of fun. And so, yeah, anything with a racket, still play a lot of squash as well. And so apart from our mutual interest in uh, Navy tennis, uh, there is an anecdote in this chapter six that raises for me a point that kind of kind of continues throughout the book. And you talk about how you began playing tennis under legendary Navy coach Bobby Bayless, who went on to uh, great success at Notre Dame, helming the tennis team for many years until about a decade or so ago. Uh, but you said at one point, Coach Bayless thought you would be perhaps a more terrific squash player. And so he recommended you you cross over and go to Halsey Fieldhouse. And about playing squash, you wrote, and it is an underdog's game because you can outmaneuver and outthink more physically talented opponents. Um, why, what made you believe that was true about squash in particular? Uh, three things I think really stand out in the comparison of tennis and squash. Um, and from my perspective, my physiognomy being five feet, five inches tall, not a big guy, not a lot of wingspan, but I have great foot speed uh, and very quick hands. So first and foremost, squash is in a box and you're, uh, it's all about quickness and the ball moves much faster. In tennis, maybe the very fastest serve that's going to come at you in intercollegiate tennis might be 115, 120 miles an hour. A squash ball, as it comes off the racket, is going 220 miles an hour. It's much faster. It's instantaneous vector analysis. So point one, uh, good for me, is quickness is the, the queen of the battlefield, so to speak. Uh, point two is squash, I think more than tennis, this is debatable, but I think more than tennis is, is a mind game, brain on brain because of the speed of the ball and because you're in such close proximity to your opponent. Um, so as opposed to tennis where you're just often pounding the ball and trying to zip it by your opponents, uh, in squash, it, it's harder to do because there's a back end to the court. So uh, instantaneous vector analysis, I think, plays to a quick mind as well as quick hands and feet. And then third and finally, you're physically in the box. 
with your opponent. You know, in a tennis court, your opponent's way across that net. In squash, the physicality of the game becomes very important. And again, although I'm not a big guy, I'm kind of built low to the ground. I have a low center of gravity. Uh, I'm 5'5", but, you know, 150, 155 pounds. That's a lot of uh, weight and force down low if you need to move a taller, shall we say, more slender opponent out of the way. Um, So for all those reasons, I found squash uh, a nice fit for me and and achieved more. I uh, was at the very bottom of the varsity ladder, eventually clawed my way to a letter in tennis. Squash, I was at the top of the ladder and the team finished in the top five in the country uh, two of the three years I played the varsity. So much better results, um, a fun game, but I like them both and still hit a tennis ball as well. And so the lesson uh, to me as I read the book uh, was looping back to that first chapter, the power of no, in a way. You heard no from Bob Bayless, although in a very polite uh, mentor type of way. You heard no, but you didn't get discouraged and you didn't end your playing career. You found a new a new path. And even as someone who you said is uh, maybe smaller than the average tennis player, you found a game that you could suit your own advantages. And I found that to be paralleled by John Paul Jones, uh, who you raise in this first chapter a little bit, an undersized Scottish Navy captain, the father of the American Navy, Someone who all Naval Academy midshipmen are they're memorizing his sayings and exploits in their reef points uh, books they're carrying around through Plebe Summer. Uh, what could you tell us a little bit about John Paul Jones? I think you've uh, sketched him pretty well. He was a quintessential underdog. His father was a gardener. Um, he went to sea. He was a prickly, difficult person in a lot of ways. I think stemming from the fact that he was a smaller person and felt he had to project a certain largeness in order to make his way in the world, but very talented, obviously, and and just an indomitable will. So he ends up in the colonies and becomes enamored of the American cause and eventually finds his way to command of an American warship and enters into one of the epic battles in American naval history, Bonhomme Richard and Serapis off the uh, east coast of the British Islands. And at one point in the battle, he's just getting the hell knocked out of him. Um, Masts are going down, his cannon aren't firing right, his crew is effectively saying, let's surrender this thing. Because of course, in the 19th century and the 17th century, it was acceptable to surrender if you were outmanned, outgunned, and your cause appeared hopeless. At this point in the battle, the British captain kind of hails across the two ships are bound very closely together at this point and says, sir, will you strike your colors? And John Paul Jones utters this immortal phrase, I have not yet begun to fight. I think there were probably a few F-bombs in there. He was also a very uh, colorful speaker. That word was in use in those times as well. Um, But it inspired his crew, and they started firing back, and the battle turned. And it's uh, the title of the chapter, again, is The Power of No. And I think you see that shot through the history and culture of the U.S. Navy. Um, it, It becomes a kind of a touchstone. And so uh, 
John Paul Jones is someone to pick up the theme you just made. He's he doesn't have all the advantages uh, of his bigger, stronger foes, but he has a highly indomitable will, and that carries him to success in the battle. And there's a dark side, too, uh, to John Paul Jones that you become aware of in the course of your study. Again, for everyone listening, the book is To Risk It All by Admiral James Stavridis, and we're talking about John Paul Jones. Now, you say on chapter, in chapter one, page five, I began to understand the dark side of John Paul Jones, the immense vanity, deep insecurity, sexual profligacy, and enormous ambition that drove this gardener's son who seemed cursed with an inferiority complex. I wonder, as you examined leaders capable of risking it all, if you found a dark side. You often do. And, and here we'll, we'll step outside the confines of the book, for example, and look at someone like a Napoleon, uh, who was, um, again, from very humble beginnings, a Corsican, uh, lower middle class family, um, always felt he was kind of a step behind his uh, more aristocratic peers in the French royal army of the day. Uh, he becomes enamored of the uh, revolution. Uh, of course, many in France did and, and rises to great heights. Also a very small man, shorter than I, who had to deal with that kind of insecurity as well. So, um, you know, some so often we see great men and women who are spurred to heights by challenges that are outside their control that they feel they need to compensate for. And uh, certainly the case of John Paul Jones, certainly the case, my view in Napoleon's life as well. We could go on with, with many other examples, but um, that's why it's that combination we talked about a few minutes ago, John, of leadership and character have to be part of the mix in making the kind of decisions, particularly in those moments where, where you must literally risk it all. Diverting from the book for a moment, and I want to get back into the Navy, and I'll kick it to David Craig in a second for some current questions on the Navy. Leadership, can it be learned? Must it be developed separate from learning or in combination? Uh, it's one of your three principal ingredients Tell us how one develops leadership. Leadership is a combination of inherent gifts and what we learn along the road of life. And I think that inherently, some people are given gifts that make them uh, appear to be a, quote, natural leader, end quote. And some of those gifts might include uh, a facility with language. Um, look at someone like uh, Volodymyr Zelensky. He's using all of these skills, I think many of which will come very naturally to him um, in his role and life as an entertainer to which he gravitated. Now he's using them with lethal effectiveness in this uh, conflict with Russia. Um, that can be honed, but you really are born with a proclivity to speak well, to have physical presence. This is where being 6'2 and, and having a big physical presence can be an enormous advantage for a leader in the road of life. Um, those kinds of things are gifts that the, the hand of God reaches out and touches uh, a baby as it joins the world. I think more importantly, um, 
we become a reflection of, first and foremost, what our parents put into us as children, what we inculcate from the home in which we are raised. I'm very lucky. My father was a Marine Corps colonel. My mother, a lifelong reader and intellect. Um, I kind of, I feel, got the, the best of both of them. And they were endlessly loving. We were our own little Greek village, um, one sister. And, uh, you know, I came away from all that with just huge security, a sense that the world was with me. Um, that, again, is not something you can learn. That's something you're given. But it is a gift that I think influences um, those who are lucky enough to experience that kind of childhood. And then uh, third and finally, here we come to the learning part. As we go through our education, we learn a great deal, and not just from books. We learn a lot from our peers about what they think of us, what they are like. We have interactions with peers. Obviously, we're learning in a very coherent, conscious way from teachers. Um, I always like to say about learning as a leader, um, your education really begins the day you graduate from school. And what I mean by that is after you graduate, suddenly you're the teacher. You're the one deciding what books will I read this year? What newspapers will I follow? Am I going to put uh, The Economist on my Kindle and read it every single week, line by line, to understand the world? Um, that education, that lifelong education, I think is crucial in the formation of leadership skills. And by the way, not just nonfiction. Reading great novels helps an individual become a much better leader. A book I often recommend to leaders is a book that everyone reads when they're 14 years old and then forgets about it. And the book is To Kill a Mockingbird. Here's a book about race in America, about a flawed judicial system, about immense integrity, about a lawyer, a country lawyer who risks it all, his position in society, his family's safety <clears throat> in order to do what he thinks is right. And it's about a young woman coming of age, scout. Um, do you think that's a book about America today? I do. It's a good example of books about stories um, help us understand what good leaders can be. So I think leadership is kind of the sum of the gifts we're given, our family, our formal education, and perhaps most importantly, the education we give ourselves as we travel this voyage of life. And that's a great transition. I want to come back in a bit to Dory Miller, a fascinating story in the book. But as you talk about fiction and the value it serves in developing leadership, visualizing new problems, putting yourself in the position to have to risk it all, which we don't have to do every day, but we will at one point in time, as you suggest in the book. Uh, your interest in fiction extends even into writing it. 2034, a novel of the next world war, a really successful and fine book you wrote, co-wrote with Elliot Ackerman. Uh, what was that experience like as you talk about developing leadership through fiction? Well, it's a wonderful experience to write fiction. First and foremost, um, 2034, a novel of the next world war is my 10th book, but my first novel. 
And uh, what a gift to write it with Elliot Ackerman, who is a fellow veteran, uh, someone who fought as a Marine officer in these forever wars, both Iraq and Afghanistan, recipient of the Silver Star, Purple Heart, and also a CIA operations officer in Afghanistan after he transitioned from his uh, his first hitch in the U.S. Marine Corps. So deeply experienced, but our combat experiences really fit together. Obviously, mine are maritime strikes from the sea, operations on the high seas, very Pacific-oriented, focused toward China. Elliot's are, are the quintessential ground warfare experiences in these so-called forever wars. So it was a wonderful fit and finish. And then secondly, Elliot is an extremely accomplished artist in the writing of fiction. He's published uh, four previous novels, one of which was nominated for the National Book Award, the Oscars of Fiction. So uh, a great fiction writer. I had written nine books of nonfiction, uh, many of which were bestsellers. And also I brought the geopolitics, the cybersecurity, the high-level command experience. So again, just a, a wonderful fit between the two of us. And we're currently hard at work on a sequel, uh, 2054, set in that year, which examines the rise of artificial intelligence and how that might impact not only geopolitics, but how it might impact our domestic turbulence here in the United States. So look for that. Uh, it'll be coming out about a year from now. We certainly will. In today's book, To Risk It All, we're talking about leadership and character with Admiral Stavridis. We were just touching on 2034, uh, and the center of that book is a clash between the United States and China in the South China Sea. And this is something people talk about all the time. Certainly, our audience is very educated on this topic, and really no one more than our own Real Clear Defense editor, David Craig. Now, David, I know you prepared a few questions for the Admiral on kind of current Navy issues. Uh, would you like to take a go? Absolutely. Thanks, John. Uh, Admiral, you know, one of the biggest things right now, of course, is fleet size. Um, but there's been a, several concerning issues of late, one of which is shipbuilding. We had a proposed new site that was just recently canceled as part of the budget. And we were already just woefully behind on shipbuilding, ship maintenance and repair. In a recent article in Forbes, Lauren Thompson mentions that the 30-year plan calls for our manned fleet to go down to 280, where China is projected to be at 400 ships. Yes. Uh, first and foremost, David, you're right to focus on China. That is, as, as the expression goes, the pacing threat. And uh, it often surprises listeners, perhaps not of this particular podcast, but of more general podcasts. Many readers are quite surprised to discover that China has more warships than the United States. Full stop. Uh, as the saying goes, quantity has a quality all its own. Having said that, ours our larger, we have many more nuclear powered, we have longer range capability. We also enjoy a stunning network of overseas bases, a Mahanian concept that, that leverages the power of a fleet considerably. So I think it's at this minute, it's, it's a balanced uh, set of combat capabilities as opposed to 
20 years ago, a war in the Pacific with China would have been pretty close to a slam dunk for the United States. Today, that is not the case. And as we examine in, in the book 2034, set in the year 2034, uh, in that book, the two nations are, are quite balanced with China having a technological advantage, United States still having a pretty robust combat capability. All that kind of pulls us back to the present. And I'm very concerned about ship numbers. I, I do believe the right number for the U.S. fleet is somewhere in the mid 300s, 350, 355. I'm not sure we need to match China number for number. I'd much rather have the quality edge. But even there, I feel China kind of pulling ahead on aspects of maritime warfare, including anti-ship cruise missile, hypersonic speeds of those missiles, getting quite good in cyber, quite good in space. Again, it's a it's a pretty close race at the moment, although if you said to me, Admiral, you pick which side do you want to play in this uh, war, I'd still... I'd still grab that U.S. hand of cards, particularly given the bases, the technology, the striking power. Uh, you know, the U.S. Navy unleashed, it can be a formidable force. Uh, but China's moving quickly, and by the way, building nuclear aircraft carriers. So bottom line, what should we do? Uh, I think we need to pay attention to numbers. They're not the only metric, but they're a very important one. I think we need to focus in particular on the technology side, on unmanned space, special forces. Here, I really applaud what the Commandant of the Marine Corps, David Berger, is doing with this idea of Marines back on ships operating behind first and second island chains. I think those kind of technologies um, are very powerful. So number of ships matters. Technology matters, and in particular, artificial intelligence and cybersecurity. And third and finally, that network of alliances. And that goes with the bases. But I think we ought to be strengthening the relationship between India, Japan, Australia, United States, the so called Quad. Uh, personally, I think we should also be working with South Korea to make it a quint get South Korea comfortable working in and around Japan. That's been a stumbling block in our alliance structure. Uh, and then as we look a little bit more into the future, leverage Singapore, which is very much with us and engaged. But we ought to be looking, I think, principally also at, uh, and these are more difficult, at the Philippines and Vietnam. Um, those are two locations and potential allies that, have some challenges. We don't have time to unpackage all that, but diplomatically investing in alliances, I think, makes a lot of sense. So those those would be my three uh, snapshot prescriptions for the U.S. Navy. I'll close by saying I don't envy the chief of naval operations the dilemma of funding readiness and keeping our ships capable as opposed to ship building and putting pure numbers out there. Um, bottom line, as we go forward in this century, as we try and illustrate in the novel 2034, I think there will be a premium on maritime capability. It, I mean, it should already be there. 
But another question I have for you that kind of has an analogy to today is the the war in um, Azerbaijan and then the Ukraine war. Now, you know, everyone's saying that tanks are obsolete. However, they're forgetting that Russian tanks don't have the defensive systems that ours do and that historically throughout wars, we've always come up with something to counter those threats. I apply that same logic to aircraft carriers. The reason being, we don't have the alliance basing available for the Air Force. Thus, we have to have aircraft carriers to have a carrier strike group be able to send in air assets to support any sort of combat mission. So I think it's, I, I wouldn't, I don't know if I'd say it was lazy, but interested in your thoughts of and in the shipbuilding plan, I think we only have one or two more carriers in the next 10 years plan, you know, finishing the Kennedy, I suppose, and the one following. What are your thoughts on the carrier and how important that is? Yeah, let me just pick up one thread from the beginning of your question, a very good one, which is tanks. And um, I think it is intellectually extremely lazy to say, oh, the day of tanks is over. Um no, I don't think so at all. And you know, I'll stipulate at the beginning here of what I'm about to say that there's nothing admirals like better than criticizing generals. Um, but I think it's fair to say that the Russian generals have failed in a number of critical dimensions, one of which is just pushing this armor into the battlefield without defensive systems, without command of the sky, without what we would call combined arms operations. So I think the tank used effectively in a combined arms is anything but dead. So having said that, now let's get underway. Let's go to sea. I think that same line of thought applies to our aircraft carriers, which is to say, and this was your point a moment ago, and one that I surfaced even before that, it's the idea of bases can help provide air cover from our friends in light blue who can be part of a combined operations effect at sea. And by the way, that's before we start thinking about the Aegis combat systems. And what's really exciting in my view is lasers and the idea of using beams of light instead of launching these telephone poles, trying to knock down an incoming telephone pole. Um, so I think there's technology. I think there's diplomacy in those bases. I think there's uh, the, the power of the U.S. Air Force and then finally the power of our, our allies as well. So I think if you put that in the perspective of the carrier force, those carriers still look pretty damn usable. Now, does that mean we they're going to be invulnerable in the battlefield? No. And we need to get out of another aspect of lazy thinking, which is the way we thought about the carrier in the forever wars. And I commanded, I'm very proud of it, Carrier Enterprise as the Enterprise Carrier Strike Group commander. And we would put our carriers any damn place we wanted to, to strike Afghanistan and Iraq and the Horn of Africa, because our opponents really didn't have the means to reach out and touch us. You know, they could try this and that. The Iranians might have some capability, but boy, China's a different world. And as a result of that, we need to think more coherently about how to employ those carriers the same way that our generals are thinking about how to employ tanks on the battlefield. Neither, in my view, is obsolete yet. Final thought, they're more vulnerable 
because of all the things we've talked about. But as you said, quite correctly, David, the history of defense, and here we are on the Real Clear Defense podcast, the history of defense is that yin and yang of offense and defense. I think there's still a ways to go before you retire either tanks or aircraft carriers. One last question on the fleet size is what's always struck me is I, I did a graduate thesis on China and Southeast Asia, and that highlighted the you know, the South China Sea as a transit point of, you know, how, of increasing importance for us as it, and almost most of our trade is done through shipping and one, and not necessarily all through the South China Sea. But when we're talking about acting in the national interest and protecting that, the Navy is on the forefront, but yet it doesn't seem to be quite the, on the forefront of our national security strategy or the national defense strategy. Everything else we've been involved in hasn't necessarily been in our core national interest, whereas shipping, I mean, we're seeing some of the effects, secondary and tertiary of the issues with uh, shipping in the supply chain. You sound a lot like Rear Admiral Alfred Thayer Mahand, who uh, just over 100 years ago sketched out this whole idea of sea power and its influence upon history. And he has been shown to be right again and again. And Mahan's theory of the case, and here I'll refer you to an earlier book of mine called Sea Power, The History and Geopolitics of the World's Oceans. The last chapter of that book is taking Alfred Thayer Mahan's theories and updating them for today's world. Except you don't have to update them all that much. You know, take away the sailing ships and the short-range cannon substitute nuclear aircraft carriers, foreign bases, all fits together pretty well. So Mahan would say um, that it's a maritime game out there and it's going to get more dangerous as China increases capability, more dangerous as China and Russia move together, operate their fleets together, throw the Iranians into that mix, into that little triangle. It's a pretty formidable force out there potentially arrayed against the U.S. Navy. So back to where we were a moment ago, you need enough ships, you need the right technologies, you need that diplomatic level of overseas basing. And by the way, again, no news flash to listeners at Real Clear Defense, but uh, you also need merchant fleets and the ability to go in and out of merchant ports and capability to handle containers and not giving all that away to Chinese oversight, for example. Uh, last thought, um, you mentioned the South China Sea. Let's put some numbers on that for a moment. China desperately wants it. They describe it as territorial waters. I mean, that's extraordinary. Territoriality would give China complete sovereign control over this vast body of water, which is half the size of the continental United States. They claim it in its entirety. If we accede to that, we would be surrendering not only vast oil and gas reserves that are under it, but also control of, wait for it, 40% of the world's shipping moves through the South China Sea, 40%. And yeah, you're right, David, 95% of international trade itself goes by sea. So 40% is a huge tranche that we would simply be turning over to the Chinese. Alfred Thayer Mahan wouldn't roll over in his grave. He would come back to earth and chastise us deeply. So I think for all those reasons, we are a maritime nation. We ought to understand that 
and fund it if we think we're going to compete effectively with China. That's excellent. And maybe a way to round out uh, this discussion of to risk it all, uh, staying on the Navy, is to loop back to a person you describe, a hero in the book, in chapter five, uh, Dory Miller. Uh, This was a sailor I had never heard of before. I discovered through reading your book, Dory Miller was a cook who was killed uh, in action during World War II, but he was awarded the Navy Cross for actions that took place at Pearl Harbor when his ship was sunk by Japanese torpedo bombers. He came up from below decks. He manned an anti-aircraft gun without training. He took down a couple of aircraft himself, rescued his shipmates. This tremendously heroic activity that he performed uh, spontaneously. And then years later, after Pearl Harbor, he was lost at sea. He died in 1943. Tell me a little bit about his story, if you could. Oh, what a, a remarkable man and and so respected everywhere he went in his life. He was a big guy and a championship boxer. He was African-American, came out of Texas, um, you know, and did not a lot of great options for African-Americans in Texas in those years. So he enlisted in the Navy. You mentioned he was a cook. That was his only option in a essentially segregated Navy, African-Americans shamefully were uh, required to be cooks or cleaners, valets for the uh, officers. They would take care of the officer's mess, shine the officer's shoes, cook the meals. So Dory Miller, not a complainer, took that, uh, became one of the championship boxers of the Pacific Fleet well-liked by everyone he ever came in contact with. Pearl Harbor comes, the strike comes. He wants to do everything he possibly can to defend his ship. He starts by trying to find the captain of the ship who's gone up to the bridge. He wants to go where the guns are firing, finds the captain on his ship. The captain is grievously wounded. Uh, he, He helps bring the captain down. And then after getting the captain sort of secure, uh, again, previously wounded, Dory sees an anti-aircraft gun that's unmanned and it's got ammunition and he jumps on it. There's an officer there who's kind of on the other gun who knows a little bit. And the two of them kind of figure out how to man these guns and they start firing. And Dory Miller does, in fact, shoot down at least one, possibly two Japanese zeros. And he was asked later, how would you know how to do that? And he said, well, it's just like duck hunting. You just have to point the barrel where you think the plane is going to be. And uh, and he did that um, at great risk to himself. I mean, Japanese bullets and tracers and bombs and torpedo bombs are going off. Ships literally sinking underneath them. It's a remarkable story of real heroism And it's an example of that to risk it all moment. He could have stayed at his battle station, which was down in the wardroom, making sure there was hot coffee available when and if the officers could come down and grab hot coffee or a quick meal in the middle of the battle. He knew that was not going to be the place to be. So he charged for the guns, manned one. Again, a remarkable story. And as I I mentioned in the book, to risk it all, I came across him first 
when I walked aboard an old Navy frigate uh, in Newport, Rhode Island, USS Miller. It was named after Dory Miller. But people didn't really seem to have a sense. I asked a couple of crew members, so who's your ship named after? And it was, they really didn't have a good sense of it. I, I, I feel there wasn't the kind of respect uh, that there should be to this story. So I wanted to include the Dory Miller story as one of the nine moments of real decision and to risk it all. And, and so he's a chapter. And I'm really pleased to say, um, as I was working away on this chapter, I literally saw a press release come out from the Pentagon at the Secretary of the Navy uh, just over a year or so ago, decided that the next big, beautiful nuclear aircraft carrier is going to be named USS Dory Miller. That's a pretty wonderful thing. And believe me, that crew will know all about the story of Dory Miller, um, which is one that I think of a lot. And I'll close with this. You know, one of the points of the book is to put yourself in that simulator, to put yourself in these stories and ask yourself, would I have the courage, as John Paul Jones did, to continue to fight even against what appear to be hopeless odds? Do I have the, the gumption, the courage of Dory Miller when I could be kind of closeted away down below decks in the wardroom? Would I charge for the guns? Would I do everything I could to help my shipmates? Dory Miller makes a pretty good choice. And I think he, as a result, is one of the headline stories in To Risk It All. He certainly is. And I was glad to read of a common foot soldier or sailor. Uh, our foot soldiers and sailors win our battles. And to see Dory Miller, to be introduced to Dory Miller alongside uh, such naval heroes as uh, John Paul Jones, uh, David Farragut, and others was a real treat. The book is To Risk It All, highly recommended. Uh, for David Craig, I'm John Waters, Admiral Stavridis. Thanks for joining us to talk today. Thanks, John and David. My pleasure. And thanks to our listeners. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen. In the show notes, you can find a link to sign up to receive The Morning Recon, our daily newsletter summary of defense news. For Real Clear Defense editor David Craig and contributor John Waters and everyone here at Hot Wash, I'm John Sorensen.